you have a Bible, you can grab it and turn to the book of James, James chapter 1. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have some on the back table. You can grab one of these copies. And if you have uh, this copy, it's uh, going to be on page 1113. If you're not sure where James is at, it's on page 1113. Uh, so you can grab that. James chapter 1, we're going to focus on verses uh, 22 through the end of the chapter, verse 27. I, I don't know any uh, high school graduates personally, but I've noted that it's, it's high school graduation season. I've seen this on social media. I remember that as being a pretty big deal uh, in my uh, adolescent life. I don't know about you. It was a big deal. I remember the ceremony. I remember my parents organizing an open house so that people could come. I remember that I got more money than I'd ever had in my life at that, at that event. And people, uh, it was a significant event. Uh, it's a landmark in, in, in a, a young person's life. And in our society, it's a marker of, of maturity. It's sort of this, this rite of passage, uh, um, a sign, as it, as it were, of, of maturity, uh, a sign of growth. Because we have, we have physical markers of maturity. We grow and we change. Um, we move from childhood to adulthood. But we also have these um, different sort of steps along the way, along life's journey that mark us as mature, as moving from childhood to adulthood, from irresponsibility to more and more responsibility. They differ from culture to culture. Um, I would say within the United States, the things that come to my mind are when you get your driver's license, uh, your high school graduation, your first job, maybe your first apartment or getting married. Uh, Andrew and I, as some of you know, have been on this journey of, of purchasing a home. And I've been married for 14 years. I have six children. Not 14 yet. I, we're almost 14. We have six children. We have six children for sure. I know that. Um, but uh, this feels like some sort of step of maturity. It's like a, 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 a mile marker that we're stepping into. And so we mature physically, and then we mature within society. We see how that happens. And in some ways, that's what James is addressing, but not about, about physical maturity or about social maturity, but about spiritual maturity. How do we, how do we mature as Christians? What are, the, what are the means of maturity? How do we grow? And along with that, what are the things that should be showing up in our lives if we are growing as Christians? What will it look like? What are these mile markers and these significant rites of passage that we will go through? What does it look like to be a mature Christian? Last week, we sort of related this to a, a doctor. And a doctor will take care of a child and, and offer up different suggestions for how that child will grow best, including things like, here's what they need to eat, here's what they need to do to exercise, and maybe take some vitamins. They'll say they need certain social interaction and that they need to be in a, a loving environment to, to thrive. But doctors will also assess a child's growth. So they say this is how the child will grow, and then they will assess if the child is growing correctly. They have growth charts, and they have different uh, mile marker question, milestone questions that they will ask. So there are ways that we ways that we grow, and then there are these goals and these markers of maturity. So we talked about that. We talked about seeds a little bit. You know, if you purchased a, a, a little bag of seeds, I don't know if you've ever done that, but you can purchase a bag of seeds, and on the back of that, it will it will give you instructions about how to care for that, how to how to plant it, you know, how deep in the soil does it need to go, how much water is it going to need, how much sunlight is it going to need in order for it to grow. But along with that, there's going to be a description about when is that seed going to germinate? 
and and when will it bear fruit? And there's even a picture on the front. Here's what a mature plant will look like. And so we think about seeds and we think about maturity and there's this how does it grow and then there's also the, the signs that it is growing the way that it is supposed to. And that's sort of what we we're, we're pointing out here in the book of James. So last week we were thinking about spiritual maturity and we focused on the how question. How do we grow in maturity? And this is what we said. We said that rightly responding to the word produces spiritual maturity. That the way we grow is by rightly responding to the word. That is our means of growth. So we looked at verse 18 of chapter 1, which says that the Lord brought us forth by the word of truth. We've been brought forth. We've been born again by the word of truth. And now that we have been born, we are going to mature as followers of Jesus who are continually offering up our lives as sacrifices to the Father who has given us life. And the way that maturity is going to happen is by rightly responding to the word. So we're born by the word, and then verses 19 and 20, we are quick to hear the word. We hear the word. That's the first response that we saw last week. So we're slow to speak, we're slow to get angry, but we're quick to hear the word. We respond to the word by listening with eagerness and expectancy. We're those who have a, a regular diet, a regular intake of the word, just like you would have a, a regular daily intake of water and food. And we eagerly want to hear the word so that so that it will be food for our souls, so that we will grow and we will mature, we will mature. Not only do we hear it though, but then in verse twenty one we are the way that we rightly respond to the word is by receiving it with meekness. We hear it with eagerness, we receive it with meekness. It's the idea of being teachable, that we are openly, fully, and humbly hearing God's word. We trust that it's able to save our souls. So we clear out the weeds of wickedness. And we let the word produce fruit in our lives. The word is like this seed, and we, when we receive it with meekness, then we allow it to plant itself deep in us so that it can bear fruit in our lives. And then that takes us to this final way that we're to respond to the word, and that's to do what it says. That shows up in verse 22, and that's where we're going to focus for the most part today. And after that, James is going to, to summarize then what maturity produced by the word is going to look like. So our main idea is actually going to be the same thing that it was last week, which is rightly responding to the words produces spiritual maturity. And what we're going to do is we're going to think about this third and final way of rightly responding to the word, which is to do what it says. And then in verses 26 and 27, we're going to see what spiritual maturity looks like. What does James think it will look like for us to be mature? So verses 22 through, through 25 are another answer to the question of how do we grow and verses 26 and 27 are the growth chart. It's the milestone questions. Are we growing? How, how should we be growing? What will it look like? So let's read James 1 and I actually want to read uh, beginning in verse 18 but we'll focus on verses 22 through 27. So James chapter 1 beginning in verse 18. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, 
He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. Where he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So again, we're thinking about rightly responding to the word produces spiritual maturity. And having heard and then received the word, the next thing that we are to do is to do what it says. Do what the word says. So that's our first big idea today, our first thought today. Do what the word says. This this sort of continues the theme of rightly responding to the word, but it also forms this bridge into what it looks like to be spiritually mature because we're actually doing something we're showing this maturity so it's a bridge into verses 26 and 27 and you notice that it begins in verse 22 with this word but which communicates that hearing and seeing uh, hearing and receiving the word without doing what it says is incomplete and in fact it's worthless james helps us to see that if we are rightly hearing and rightly receiving God's word through the gospel and through the scriptures, it's going to result in action. And he builds this whole command around this wonderful illustration about looking into a mirror. He says that the person who hears the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks into a mirror and and sees his or her reflection and then walks away and totally forgets what he or she looks like. A mirror is a, is a common object, and uh, I love how James just takes you know real practical things. So it's a common action, uh, object, and in the ancient world, it probably wouldn't have been glass. It would have been more polished metal of some kind. But either way, a, a mirror gives us an accurate representation of what we look like. Usually it's in the bathroom, and you wake up, and you go to the bathroom first thing in the morning, and the mirror gives you an accurate representation of what you look like. And usually it's it's not pretty when you first wake up you catch a glimpse of your of yourself in the mirror and you realize you know something's going to need to happen before i step out into public today um maybe your hair is a bit disheveled your face might be dirty or you got some lines on your face from where you were you know sleeping hard that night even later in the day you might go to the mirror after dinner and and you notice that you've got spinach stuck in your, spinach is notorious for getting stuck in your teeth you know you smile and you can see it there there's there's something wrong at various stages in our lives, we, we may notice a, a zit on our face, and we need to deal with that. How are we going to deal with that? How can I go in public with this on my face? I have to find a way to deal with it. But in all of these circumstances, we, we see ourselves, and we see that we need to do something to correct our appearance. How strange it would be to look in the mirror and see something on our face, maybe like a, a giant mustard stain or something on the side of your face, to see that and then walk away and not do anything about it. And that's kind of the, the picture that James is, is, is drawing here. Uh, speaking of drawing pictures, I know kids, sometimes when you're taking notes, you draw a picture. Maybe this would be a good thing to do. You could draw a mirror, and you could think about how a mirror shows what you look like. So you could draw yourself a mirror and maybe a, a funny face and think about how 
how the Word reveals what we look like, how it shows who we are and how we would need to correct that. Um, maybe a way to think about that. Adults, you can do that too if you want. Uh, but James uses this illustration to say that, that hearing and receiving the Word, but not doing what the Word says, is like looking in the mirror and doing nothing about what that, that mirror reveals to us. He says, in fact, that it's like looking in the mirror and then just totally forgetting what you look like. And we've all had those experiences. We see something that needs to be taken care of with regard to our physical appearance, but then we walk away from the mirror and we forget to deal with it. It may be something that no one notices, but it could be something fairly humiliating to us. I didn't ask my dad permission, but I remember the story of him when my sister, my older sister, was younger, that she had put a barrette of some kind in his hair, and it was hanging down on his forehead. And I don't know if he looked in the mirror and saw it, but let's just assume that he did. Then he went to the store, and he noticed that the sales clerk kept looking up at his forehead because he had forgotten to take this this barrette out of his hair. That's kind of what's going on here, is we just forget what we look like. We see what needs to be changed, but then we walk away and forget. Now, why would that be? Because we're busy. Because we're concerned about other things. We're more concerned about our own agenda, so much so that we don't make the changes that we see need to be made. And the same thing can happen with the Word. Is that the Word is this mirror that reveals who we are. And we see where we need to change. Even this morning, you might see it. And then you walk out the door and forget. Because that's who we are. Because we're so wrapped up in other things. In fact, the danger here. Is, is at the end of verse 22. Do you see it? Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The danger of hearing, receiving, and not doing the word is self-deception. He brings that up again in verse 26. He says if someone it says he's religious and doesn't control his tongue, he deceives his heart. Self-deception. We deceive ourselves because we we see what we're supposed to do and we don't do it. The deception comes, we, we convince ourselves, in fact, that hearing the word is enough. Now this is where James sort of is going to get in our faces and we need to let his words sting us a little bit. He is saying that we are deceiving ourselves if we think that hearing God's word and even receiving it as truth, if, if we think that that is enough, to make us mature followers of Christ. That all we need to do is hear the word. All we need to do is read the word. Hearing the preaching of God's word, listening to sermons, reading scripture, participating in Bible studies or small groups, even memorizing passages of scripture, none of that is sufficient to make us mature Christians. Rather, we have to hear the word, receive the word, and then do what it says. Imagine reading a book about nutrition and, and exercise, about what you should you should eat and how you should work out the exercises you should do. That that's not a book that you just read. That's something that you're supposed to do. And if the source is reliable, the benefit of the book is not going to be found in just reading what it says. It's going to be found in doing what it says. To stop eating certain foods and eat the better ones. To to get off the couch and do the exercises that are recommended. Reading a book about fitness doesn't make you fit. And hearing the word but not doing it does not make you a mature Christian. Intake of God's word is good, but if it never works itself out in our lives, 
it is totally worthless. God's word is always a call to action. It's not just truth to acquire, it's truth to enact and apply in our lives. And it's easy, it is so easy to deceive ourselves into thinking that hearing is enough to make us mature. But if we never do what the Word says, you know what that is? James says, you are deceiving yourselves. We're not... If we, if we don't do what the Word says, we are deceiving ourselves. We are no better than Herod. Do you remember Herod? Who did Herod love? Who was Herod's favorite preacher? John the Baptist. He loved to hear what John the Baptist said. But he never did anything about it. Verses 26 and 27, James is going to describe this as worthless religion. This is worthless religion. Now, the word religion has gotten a bad rap lately. That, uh, you know, when it's not about religion, it's about relationship and things like that. And I, I understand the sentiment of that. But James uses it here simply to say there's an outward manifestation of the chain that religion shows, the, the things that we do show that something has changed inside us. So he says that a religion that resides only in our heads is, is worthless. If we only acquire knowledge about how we should live, but we never actually apply what we have learned, that knowledge is worth nothing. Those of you who are in the medical field, you know many wonderful things about how to help people heal and thrive. You may even know how to save a person's life through something like CPR. But if you have, if you have the opportunity to implement that knowledge, to do what you have learned to do, and then you don't do it, that knowledge is completely useless. It helps no one, including you. So if you just want church to be a place to gather information, a place to, to build up a religion of knowledge that you never put into action, then I think James is saying, don't waste your time. That's, that's worthless. Because there's a lot of other things you could do on a Sunday morning rather than sit here and listen to instruction that you're never going to apply. Say that to myself as well. There's no point in that. If, if we read our Bible simply to win arguments, or simply because we're told to and we feel better about ourselves after we've done it, then we are missing the whole point. Hearing and receiving the word is worthless if it doesn't result in a changed life. And if we are children of God, we long not only to know the word, but to do what it says. And that's what James goes to in verse 25. In contrast to the illustration of 22 to 24, James writes in verse 25, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So the negative example of 22 through 24 is contrasted to the person in verse 25. What's interesting is if you compare these, both individuals look at the word. If the word is the mirror, both of them look. You look at verse 23. This person, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face. He looks intently. And then you look at verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, both, both hear and receive, both look into the word. But the second person does something different. He does a few different things. Let me talk about what this person does differently. Both look. But what does this second man do? The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and what? Perseveres. If we're going to do what the word says, we need to persevere in the word. What's the first man do? He looks intently and then he walks away. 
He just takes off. But this person persists in staring into the mirror. And commentator Motyer says this about the word persevere. He says that the word is more literally continues in its company. He says this can happen any day and every day. There can be a continuing enjoyment of a relationship with God's truth and God's law begun in the early morning, but it is the work of a lifetime. And he calls this perseverance a companionship of the word. I like that. That, that the way we persevere is to have a companionship, a partnership with the word. We persevere, we continue in the word rather than simply walking away from it unchanged. We don't assume that Sunday morning is enough or that a moment in the morning is enough. We have to persist in the word consistently and constantly. So the true believer looks into the word and then perseveres in it. And then we know, what do they do? They remember and they act. So you persevere in the word, you remember and act. So this person perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. The person in the first example, you remember what he does when he looks in the mirror? He sees, and then he forgets. But the true child of God is not a forgetful hearer, but one who remembers and acts. When you think about remembering and forgetting, at least in my mind, around Scripture, it goes back to the story of the children of Israel. Their, their rise and their fall always had to do with they, what they remembered and what they forgot. When they remembered the word of the Lord, when you look at that in, in the book of Joshua, they remembered, they remembered, they remembered, and things went so well. When they were remembering the word of the Lord and their status as his children, then they acted in a way that brought so much blessing into their lives. But when they forgot the word, when they forgot what he had done, when they neglected the feasts and the sacrifices, then they disobeyed God, and it brought cursing upon them. And their story is our story. When we remember, when we hold fast to the word, then we are blessed. And when we forget, things go poorly. How do you remember, though? How do we remember so that we can act? There's so many different ways to, to do this. And so I hesitate to give you something real specific. I give you what I do, or at least what I'm doing now, because it always changes, and that's okay. But the way that I remember is I have a... I have a journal. <laughs> I don't know if you have a journal or if you have paper to write on somewhere. But for me, when I read the Word and I find something that sticks out to me, a verse that I want to meditate on, that that's how I can make it sink down into my heart. So I was reading this week in Psalm 19, and the last verse of Psalm 19 is this. Familiar words. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. And that just stuck out to me. And I said, I want to think about that. And how would I apply that? So I wrote it down. And then I wrote some words. I didn't write this expecting to read it on a Sunday morning. So it's fairly rough. But let me just tell you how I'm trying to meditate on the Word. And maybe it will encourage you to do the same. So I wrote this. I, wrote, I write it typically as a prayer. So I said, you see and know all, Father. You hear all my words, every intentional, purposeful word and every idle word. The words that I speak as a prayer in formal settings and the words of anger I speak at my children. Let my words be acceptable in your sight. May they be true, patient, helpful, instructive, humble, clear, caring, wise. May they exalt you, words of praise and words of worship. Make me one who encourages. Guard me from sarcasm and nasty words and yelling. 
Fill me with kindness and understanding. Make my meditations shameless, that I would have no shame about them. That I would feel no fear, no shame, no embarrassment over what my mind settles on. Keep my mind from sinful thoughts, revenge, lust, self-righteousness, anger, self-pity, doubt. May I meditate on the strength you give. On the words of Christ, on, on the wonder of Christ crucified for my salvation, of your goodness and faithfulness to me, of the fact that you are my rock and my redeemer. You are my strength. Only you can make my words and thoughts acceptable. That you are my redeemer. You take all my failure, my sinful thoughts, my nasty words, and you pay the penalty for my sins against you. Jesus, you are my hope. So that's, that then helps me to remember so I've taken time and processed through what does this mean in my own heart and then I tried to do it and I failed <laughs> and I probably did yell that day and I probably did get angry that day but I held to the truth that God is not only my rock the one who gives me strength to do what's right but he's my redeemer who helps me when I fail and forgives me when I don't have proper meditations and proper words I don't know if that will work for you but maybe it will worth a shot I promise Another way that we remember is through things like small groups and when we study the Word together. Some of the small groups, we, we just focus on the passage of Scripture that we've studied in um, that, that past Sunday morning to try to remember what was said. Some of you, we have uh, lunch together, and I usually try to say, well, what do we talk about on Sunday? Well, let's, let's try to apply it to our heart and to our lives and remember what we're doing. You know, another way we remember is the Lord's Supper. Because the Word is not just the Word here in Scripture. It is that, but it is also at the core the Word of the Gospel. And the Gospel is what changes us. And so we do this, why? In remembrance of Christ. To remind ourselves of the most important thing in the world, that our life is found in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. In the Lord's Supper, we remember the core Word, the Word of the Gospel. And we remind one another that it's only through the work of Christ that we have hope in this world. We take this and we mark ourselves as children of God through faith in Christ crucified and risen. We remember. That's the point of this, is to remember what Christ has done. I mentioned the Lord's Supper, and so let me just say a quick word. This may seem totally out of place, but a quick word about about baptism. Because when we think about doing what the Word says, baptism is one of the first things that we are called to do as followers of Jesus Christ. If you want to do something that Jesus tells you to do, he says, be baptized. It's a clear command. It's an outward sign of the new birth that James has been describing. If we have been brought forth by the word of truth, then we show that forth in baptism. It's this picture that we talk about of taking off the old garments and putting on the new garments of, of Christ. It precedes the Lord's Supper as that first act of obedience, of identifying with Jesus. And so if you've not been baptized, I would encourage you to do so, to talk to me about it. Because that, if you want to do what the Word says, that's a clear command of Jesus. And it's the first command that He gives. So we look at the Word, we persevere, we remember, and we act. And when we do that, what's the promise at the end of verse 25? He will be blessed in His doing. Does doing the Word save us? No. No, we are brought forth by the word of the gospel through faith. But doing the word is evidence of the work of God in us. If we have been brought forth by the word of truth, 
then that life in Christ is going to bear fruit in our lives. We will mature. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It is a faith that works. And when we do what the Word says, James says it will bring blessing. It's the promise of Psalm 1 that we read. It will be a tree planted by waters, bearing fruit. We will have staying power. Jesus himself talks about the, the foolishness and the emptiness of, of hearing and then not doing as compared to the blessing that comes when we would hear and then do what the Word says. We said that the Sermon on the Mount has big influence on the book of James. Do you know how Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount? These are the words found in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. Jesus finishes all the teaching and he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears, listen, who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it what's the difference between those two men they both heard but one of them did what the word said we hear the word and we will ne- if we neglect to do the word we do it to our own peril it's worse than looking like a fool because you forgot to fix something or get something out of your teeth in the mirror. Jesus says it can result in destruction. We can be so self-deceived that we assume that we have heard the word and that that is enough. And in the end, our religion is completely useless for anything. But if we hear the word and we receive it with a good, pure heart, then we will do what it says and we are building our life on this, this firm foundation I think we often push against Scripture because we we feel that obedience to it doesn't bring blessing. It's just heavy-handed. And it just it's, it harms us. It keeps us from the things that we want to do. Scripture is all about the things that I'm not allowed to do and the things that I want to do that will actually make me happy. And I don't want to listen to rules. It feels like the rules and the laws, they crush us rather than bless us. But to think that way about the word is to be self-deceived. What does James call the word here in verse 25? The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of what? Of liberty. It's not a law that imprisons and crushes, but it's a law that sets us free. Now, if it was a law that we were supposed to keep in order to earn salvation, it would crush us. But Jesus has kept the law. He has fulfilled the law's demands, and he's given us new life, and the Spirit indwells us and makes us capable of doing what the Word says. Not for salvation, but because of God's God's ways are best for our thriving. He gives us His laws because they are for our good. And they help us to live life in a way that brings blessing and fruit. Let me read you a a little story from this book by Sally Lloyd-Jones called Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. It's called Foolish Fish. What if a fish one day decided, I've had enough of being told what I can and can't do and only being allowed in the water. I want to be free. I'm going to find my fortune on land and then jumped out of the water and onto the riverbank. How far do you think that foolish fish would get? It would wriggle and flap its fins, but of course fins don't work on land. It would lie there gasping for air and pretty soon it would die. How free is that fish on land? Not very. 
The fish is not built for land. And we are not built to be away from our Heavenly Father. In the same way that this fish says, I want to be free by coming out of the constraints of this river. Sometimes if we say, I want to be free by coming away from the laws that God has given, we fail to realize that God gives us laws for our good and for our thriving and for life. Jesus summarizes this in John thirteen seventeen. After washing the disciples' feet and then teaching them, he says, If you know these things, blessed, happy are you if you do them. If you know them, you will be happy if you do them. The law is a law of liberty for those who have been set free by Christ. Jesus fulfilled the law, conquered death on our behalf. William Cooper said it like this in a hymn. This is the title of the hymn, Love Constraining to Obedience, I think is the title of the hymn. That's the title for a hymn right there. But he says this, To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child, and duty into choice. So if we see that Jesus has fulfilled the law for us, and if we hear that he has forgiven us for our sins, then it takes us from being a slave where we feel like we have to do what he says, into a child who longs to obey. And it takes us from looking at the law as a duty that we have to perform into something that we choose to do out of joy. What a gift God has given us in His Word. He's given us a mirror. A mirror not simply to see what we look like on the outside and how we have matured physically, but He's given us a mirror that shows us who we really are and shows us who He really is. We take it up and we can see who we are. What a gift. He keeps us from deceiving ourselves and thinking that we know better than He does. But what a waste. What a waste of a wonderful, the wonderful gift of the mirror of God's Word if all we do is read it and receive it and then never do anything about it. You know, it's so hard on, on Sundays and my heart is to, to hold up the Word so that we who are in Christ would see who we are and see who God is and then respond as He would have us to. I don't want us to be a church that just loves to hear the Word, loves to receive the Word and talk about the Word. I want us to be folks who do what it says. They would actually obey the Word. If anywhere that if, if you're in any place that it would be dangerous to simply hear the Word and not do it, it's probably church. That's the most dangerous place to do it. And even if we're, if we're preaching really solid biblical messages, it could be very dangerous to just love what the Word... And I do love what the Word says. I love to study the Word, and I love to have good discussions about it. But if it stops there, and that's all we ever do, what a waste. We have to do what it says. What are we going to do? <laughs> what does James want us to do? What will spiritual maturity look like? And that's what we're going to start to see now in the book of James. James is going to summarize the remainder of his letter, actually, in verses 26 and 27. So 26 and 27, he's going to take those verses, and he's going to then explode them in chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5. So he says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. 
Rightly responding to the word produces spiritual maturity, and that maturity is marked by three things, James says. It's marked by a controlled tongue, a concern for the needy, and a commitment to holiness. A controlled tongue, a concern for the needy, and a commitment to holiness. Is that a full summary of what godliness is? No. But it's going to keep us busy enough for the next weeks and months that we have to think about it. And it certainly gets at the heart of many things. A controlled tongue? Can we bridle our tongue? Can we hold our tongue? Can we keep ourselves from saying things that we shouldn't and say things that we should? James is going to explode that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. He's going to spend a lot of time talking about the tongue and helping us to see how responding rightly to the word involves what we say. He then talks about religion that is pure and undefiled. And what does he begin with? Visiting orphans and widows. It's a concern for the needy. And he's going to talk about that in chapter 2. About how often we show partiality to people who are rich and people who have things. And rather that we should be concerned about the needy and the poor who are in this world. And then a commitment to holiness. From chapter 3 verse 13 all the way to the end. He's going to talk about what holiness and righteousness looks like in our lives we can say a lot about these things and we're going to in the coming weeks so for this morning I just want to keep it very simple and say that if we hear and receive and do what the word says then we are rightly using it as a mirror to show us who God is and who we are and and when we do what the word says we will be doing these things we will have a controlled tongue a concern for the needy and a commitment to holiness and you know what happens then If we look at the word as a mirror, and then we do what it says, then we become a mirror. We become a reflection of who God wants us to be. We become a reflection of the image of God. So God says to Abraham, walk before me, Abraham, and be blameless. Why? To show the nations what I look like. God takes Israel and he sets them apart from all the nations. And he gives them all these laws and all these rules. Why? so that they would be seen as the distinct, unique people of God. They were to reflect God's holiness in the world. Why all those weird laws in Exodus and Leviticus and and Numbers and Deuteronomy? Why? Because they were supposed to look different than everyone else, and they would reflect God like a mirror to the world that was watching. And that's what we are supposed to do. We are supposed to show the world what our Father looks like. And what does He look like? He's a God of holiness. So we need to be committed to holiness. He's a God, Jesus is described as the Word. He's a God who speaks. And so when we speak, the words that we say need to reflect the God who speaks. He is a God who is concerned about the helpless and the hopeless. He's a God who has adopted us. He made us His own. And He's the God who cares for us in our weakness. We're blessed when we do what the Word says but we also bless others by showing them who our Father is. Now, Jesus did all of this best. Who reflected the Father perfectly? Jesus, of course, because He was God. And our hope is that, in, in fact, that, that our hope is not in the fact that we can obey, but the fact that, that He obeyed, that He fulfilled the law, and He died to redeem those of us who have not. So we're going to pause and we're going to remember Him today.